Good morning. Today's scripture reading for our sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the ESV. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you as for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I'm sorry, I think I went a little farther. <laughs> this is the reading, this is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. Thank you, Chris. For reading God's word for us this morning. There are certain symbols that as soon as you see them, you, you think of the thing that they represent. So a few of those, for example, is when you see the swoosh, you think Nike. When you see the different colored rings, you think of the Olympics. If you see a silver circle with a three-point star inside, you probably automatically know that's a Mercedes-Benz. If you see a swastika, you think of Nazism. If you see a hammer and sickle, you may think of communism or maybe the USSR or Russia. And when you see the cross, you think of Christianity. Every one of these symbols not only represents a thing, but it's intended to communicate something specific about the thing that it represents. And the cross is meant to communicate that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the very center of what we believe as Christians. And that's been our focus for the past several weeks. We are in a series called uh, We Believe, The Beliefs That Make Us Christian. Because you see, Christianity is not simply a personal faith where we custom build our own religion of things that we like or make us feel good. Rather, Christianity is an entire belief system, a series of related truths and propositions that fit together, creating a whole worldview or way of thinking about God and about us and about the world around us and about what's to come. And despite all of the differences between Protestants and Roman Catholics, between Baptists and Methodists, between contemporary and traditional churches, historically, there are certain things that the church as a whole, or we could say the church lowercase c, Catholic, meaning universal, has confessed to be true. And we often refer to this as the great tradition and it's articulated in historic Christian, Christian documents like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed or the 
definition of Chalcedon. But for our purposes, we've identified what those beliefs are that Christians the world over hold in common that are central to Christianity. And we've created a short statement for each of those. And so beginning the second Sunday in January, we started looking at each of those beliefs about what Christians believe. And we started with scripture. And, and we said that we believe in the Holy Bible, the inspired and errant word of God, composed of the books of the Old and New Testaments, the only certain rule of faith, saving faith and practice. So scripture is the source of everything else that we believe. And then we looked at what we believe about God based upon scripture. And we said we believe in the blessed trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God and three persons, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. And then from there, we looked at creation and the fall. We said, we believe God spoke and made all things from nothing, things seen and unseen, including mankind, both male and female, whom he made in his image in a state of innocence, though fallen through sin, on account of which the human race is under God's wrath. And so that sets the table for what we looked at, I guess, two weeks ago, the person of Jesus Christ. We said we believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, who lived a blameless life, fully pleasing to God, and became the perfect substitute for sinful humanity. And that brings us to where we're at today, the work of Jesus Christ. And here's our statement for today. We believe in Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for sinners, who was buried in a tomb, who rose on the third day, who ascended into heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Here's what that means. Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah who is prophesied about, foretold, pointed to all throughout the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible. And this same Jesus who we previously acknowledged is fully God, now with the addition of full humanity, he's also fully man, this same Jesus was executed on a Roman cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem on what Christians refer to as Good Friday. But his death was not for his own guilt or any crime of his or any wrong that he had done. Rather, his death was an offering. It was a sacrifice, a substitution for sinners like you and me. And so he truly died. He exhaled his last breath. His heart stopped beating. His human brain quit functioning and all of his human organs followed suit and his body grew cold. His then dead body was put in a tomb. His human soul and divine spirit in it no more, having descended to paradise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the saints of the Old Testament in what the Bible calls Sheol or Hades, which is the place of the dead. Three days later, on Easter Sunday, Jesus' human body was brought to life 
and glorified or miraculously transformed, becoming imperishable. His divine spirit and human soul being rejoined to it. And the stone that sealed his tomb was rolled away and Jesus walked out of the tomb alive. And after many days of appearing to his disciples, Jesus' physical body was taken up into heaven where he being exalted to the place of highest honor, the right hand of God took his seat from which he rules over his church today, having power and authority over everything on earth. So this is what we believe as Christians. If a person does not believe this, they are either A, not a Christian, or B, they are not fully instructed or have not been fully instructed in the Christian faith. Because this is what Christians, the world over, both historically and universally, have believed. This, this is the belief that makes Christians Christian. Interestingly, even non-Christians, historically, have understood that this is what Christians believe. First century historian Josephus, a Jewish man who was employed by the Roman government, writing somewhere between 70 and 100 AD, so about 30 to 40, maybe 50 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, wrote in his book Antiquities, at this time, it was a history of the Jewish people, so he's writing about that 30, 33 AD period. He writes, at this time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. This man is not a Christian, mind you. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. And the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. Writing 40, roughly 40 to 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Josephus acknowledges three things. We see that he had an understanding that Christians were those who believed that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. We see an affirmation that Jesus had been crucified. That was a real historical event. And we see an acknowledgement that Christians believed that Christ had been raised from the dead. These core beliefs of Christianity. Writing somewhere in roughly the same time frame, the latter part of the first century, the church father Clement of Rome wrote, Because of the love he felt for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, gave his blood for us by the will of God, his body for our bodies, and his soul for our souls. Clement was not only a Christian, but he was a leader in the early church, and Clement shows that Christians interpreted Jesus' death as being for them. It was on their behalf. There was a tangible benefit that Christians gained from 
the death of Jesus on the cross. Likewise, <coughs> excuse me, Ignatius of Antioch, writing in that same time period, this is, this is in roughly the same time that the apostles are writing scripture, at least John the apostle still would have been alive. Ignatius writes, now he suffered all these things for our sakes that we might be saved. Again, we see that Christians did not shy away from the account of the crucifixion. They were not embarrassed of the death of Jesus Christ on a Roman cross, but rather they, they saw the suffering and death of Jesus as being God's plan for their salvation. This universal belief that of Christians was clearly articulated in the Nicene Creed, which was written somewhere around 325 A.D., which says regarding Jesus, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate or made man by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate he suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. You see, the church Catholic or lowercase c or Christians throughout history and around the world have believed and taught without apology that Jesus' death on the cross for sinners is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Not only Jesus' death on the cross, though, but also his resurrection from the dead. 20th century evangelist Billy Graham once said, there is more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than there is that Julius Caesar ever lived or that Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. Now I just want you to think about that for a moment. That is a very bold statement. Billy Graham was interviewed in magazines, newspapers, and live television countless times. Billy Graham spoke to millions of people around the world. He was a very public figure. To make a statement like that means that either he doesn't care if anyone is going to challenge him, he doesn't care, he's just going to talk louder and quicker, or it means that he is so confident of the factualness of that statement and that it can be proven that he makes it unapologetically. Fourth century Bishop Athanasius of Alexander, who was at the Council of Nicaea in the 300s, the fourth century, which wrote the, that which penned the Nicene Creed, here's what he wrote. The Savior is working mightily among men. Every day he is invisibly persuading Numbers of people all over the world, both within and beyond the Greek-speaking world, to accept his faith and be obedient to his teaching. Can anyone in the face of this still doubt that he has risen and lives, or rather that he himself is himself the life? Does a dead man prick the consciences of men? Renowned Bible teacher John MacArthur said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in the history of the world. It is so foundational to Christianity that no one who denies it can be a true Christian. A person who believes in a Christ who was not raised believes in a powerless Christ. 
And seminary professor and Bible commentator Craig Bloomberg writes, no religion stands or falls with a claim about the resurrection of its founder the way that Christianity does. So Christ crucified for sinners, buried and raised again, is what Christians believe. But why do we believe it? And the answer is because the Bible says it's true. Beginning in Matthew chapter 1, we're told of Mary's pregnancy, that Mary has become pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. She is betrothed or engaged to this man, Joseph. And Joseph says, <clears throat> I've not gotten married yet, but the woman that I'm supposed to be married to is already pregnant. And generally, in the world, that means that someone has been unfaithful. And so I am not going to wind up marrying this woman. And yet, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, and he says that Mary has become pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and that you shall call the name of this child Jesus, which is the Greek for Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. And the reason he's supposed to call him Jesus is because he will save his people from their sins. There's an understanding right at the beginning of the, of the New Testament that Jesus was going to save sinners. Then in Matthew chapter 16, shortly after Peter's confession, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the promised one of the Old Testament, Jesus declares... I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then in verse 21, it says from that time. So from the time it's clear he is the Messiah. He is building his church. It says from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised again. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all include an account of Jesus' betrayal, of his suffering, of his crucifixion, of his resurrection, and of his ascension into heaven. In Matthew 28, we find the famous command, which we refer to as the Great Commission, where Jesus tells his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all the people groups, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. He tells them what to do, but before he tells them what to do, he tells them why to do it. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have accomplished the mission. I have been exalted by the Father. I have all power. Now go. Luke writes in Acts chapter 1 of similar instructions from Jesus after his resurrection when he tells the disciples that they will receive power from the Holy Spirit and they will be witnesses of his resurrection in all Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria to the ends of the earth and then we read in verse 9 through 11 of chapter 1. And when he had said these things, as they, that's the disciples, were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
And while they were gazing into heaven as he went. Now just get this. You've just seen a man who you saw die, who is now alive, tell you what to do. And then his body starts to ascend. And it's going, and it's going, and it's going. And they're just staring. And then while they're staring, it says, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are angels. And said, Men of Galilee. So they're looking up, and then someone's shouting at them. Whoa, whoa. Who are these guys? Where do they come from? Men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The apostles believed and were convinced that Jesus' death was an offering for sin and that he was raised bodily and that he ascended into heaven. And this is evidenced by their preaching as recorded in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that all of these early Christians, 120 of them, they were gathered, they were praying on the heels of what Jesus had told them. They were waiting for the Holy Spirit as he had told them to do. And while they were praying, the exalted Christ poured out his spirit upon them. And they began to pray and worship God in other languages that they weren't native to. And there were in Jerusalem at that time people from all over the Roman Empire who all spoke different languages. And they all came to see what all the commotion was about. And they heard in their own language these early Christians praising God and proclaiming his praise for what he had done for them to save them. And they are, they are just observing and they're, they're dumbfounded. And then Peter gets up and in verse 22 he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In this same sermon, just a few verses later, he says, he, he's talking about David. He, David, in the Psalms, writing in the Psalms, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he has not abandoned, he was not abandoned to Hades or the place of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you are, yourselves are seeing and hearing. And the next chapter over, Peter and John, they're going up to the temple at the time of prayer. They see a man who cannot walk. He's begging for money. And they say to him, silver and gold we don't have. But what we have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man gets up and begins to walk. And people who have seen this, this man begging are like what is going on and a crowd gathers and they say don't don't be surprised don't be dumbfounded that a miraculous work 
has been done. And here's the explanation they get for it in verse 13 through 15 of chapter 3. They say, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted. This is talking about when the crowds cried out, Give us Barabbas. Pilate said, who do you want me to release for you? And instead of crying out for Jesus, they cried out for a criminal. So the apostles are chastising them. They're saying, Pilate was going to let him go. You guys said you wanted a murderer to be released instead. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And to this, we are witnesses. So they weren't embarrassed of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They understood that the cross of Jesus Christ was God's plan for salvation. And they believed that God raised him from the dead. And they also believed that God had glorified him, that God had exalted him, that he had been ascended, and that he had been given all power and authority. The Apostle Paul, who was called to be an apostle by Jesus years after all the other apostles, makes it clear that the content of his preaching proclaims this very same message. In the passage that Chris read for us earlier in the service, we saw the Apostle Paul tell the believers at the church in Corinth, he said, I would remind you, brothers, of my gospel, the gospel that I preached to you. I want to remind you of the message that I go everywhere proclaiming. For I delivered to you as of first importance. This was the most important thing for me to tell you all for you to become Christians. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day. That he appeared to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than five hundred. And then he appeared to me. Even after his ascension, he appeared also to me, to the church in Philippi, we see the same content is the focus of Paul's message. He's actually urging the believers in Philippi. He says, there's fighting among you. You guys are jockeying for power. Some of you are really arrogant. And he's urging them to, to be humble and to get along. And what is the basis for that plea? Why should they be humble? Why should they get along? And he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, though he was fully God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on humanity, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, because Jesus died for sinners, therefore God has highly exalted him. He raised him from the dead. He ascended him up into heaven. And he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, so this shows his authority. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
the reason why Christians should get along and esteem and honor one another and not be boastful or arrogant or fight to get their way or jockey for power or prestige or control is because the Son of God became man and died on a cross and rose again and God has exalted him. And so that's why we should not make much of ourselves, but instead we should honor one another. So now that we've covered what Christians believe and why Christians believe it, we need to answer the question, why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus died on a cross for sinners? Why does it matter that Jesus' dead body was buried in a tomb? Why does it matter that he rose on the third day? And why does it matter that he physically ascended into heaven? Why does it matter that he sits at the right hand of God? Why does it matter that he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth? And the reason it matters because as Tim Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. You see, if Jesus really died on the cross and rose again, which he predicted that he would, then he has authority and power like no one the world has ever known. And so we should listen to him. And we should take seriously what he says and obey him and surrender our lives to him. Wave the white flag. I give up control, Jesus. You are Lord, and I am your servant, like he calls us to do. But it also matters because if Jesus' death on the cross wasn't a death for sin, you see, if he was executed because he did something wrong, if it wasn't really a sacrifice or a substitution for sinners, then we're all up a creek. Because the Bible makes very clear that God's law, the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, cannot be executed by any mortal man. There is not a single person on the earth today, man, woman, boy, or girl, who can love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who can unselfishly, consistently love their neighbor as their self. There is no one on earth, Ecclesiastes 7.21 says, who always does what is right and never sins. And so if Jesus died for his own sin, his own wrongdoing, we're up a creek. So it matters that Jesus' death was not for his own sake, but a substitution for sinners. Likewise, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and ascend into heaven, then his sacrifice would be of no benefit to us. It would not apply to us. The benefits would not be received by us because he would not be our mediator if his body decomposed and his human soul was among the place of the dead. He would not be our mediator. He would not be our defense attorney. He would not be our high priest before the throne of God. And so as the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, our faith would be worthless. We would still be dead in our sins. But if Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, 
then we can be the most confident, assured, peaceful, hopeful people the world has ever seen. Because we know that all of our sins were placed on him. So therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that we have been reconciled with God, that there is no longer any enmity, any division between us and God, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. We know that Christ is interceding for us, the one who is fully man and experienced all the hardships and the temptations of the world, but never sinned, has empathy toward us, and he prays for his people, fully understanding their weaknesses. And we know that death has been defeated. We know that death is no longer the jailer. Death is only the gardener. Death is only temporary. It has been defanged. We know that eventually death and hell, or Hades, will be thrown into the lake of fire. They will be emptied. There will be a resurrection that he who raised Christ from the dead, the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead, Romans 8, 11, will also give life to our mortal bodies. And so we have the hope of the resurrection, that physical death is only an intermission, that we will be raised to life eternal. And because Jesus has been exalted to the place of highest authority and given all authority on heaven and on earth, all power, we know all of his promises are true. And so in Hebrews 13, 5, when we're told that he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, we know the one who holds all power has the ability to make good on all of his promises. Amen. Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again and ascended on high? This is what Christians believe. Are you a Christian? Are you one of his disciples? You see, you have to have more than a Josephus understanding. Well, this is, this is what happened, and this is what Christians say, and perhaps he's the Messiah. Facts alone don't make you a Christian. Do you believe this? And have you surrendered your life to this Jesus in light of what he has said and done? And if you have, is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and ascension on high your source of confidence and peace and hope amidst a seemingly crazy and chaotic world? If it's not, it can be. Today, this very day, you can know the crucified, buried, and risen Messiah as your Lord and Savior and the King of your life. In just a moment, we're going to get ready to take the Lord's Supper after I pray. In the Lord's Supper, we take bread and juice, and we remind ourselves that this is not a fable or a fairy tale, that God became man. God gives us physical things that we can touch, the bread and the juice, so that we can remember Jesus literally became man and he actually died and his body was broken and his blood was shed for real people like me and you so that instead of experiencing eternal hell, 
we could have peace with God and have the hope of heaven. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, after I pray, we'll stand. Pastor Greg and, and James, one of our deacons, will come forward. They'll have the elements of bread and juice. And if you have surrendered your life to Christ, this time is for you to come and take those and go back to your seat. And we'll all eat and drink together, being nourished in our faith by the Holy Spirit, reminding ourselves, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. But if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, don't feel any compulsion. Oh, i got to do this. Everyone else is doing this. You won't impress us, and you certainly won't impress God. But where you're at today, do business with God. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Have you considered Jesus' claim to be the Son of God? Do you believe that he actually died and rose again for sinners? And do you believe that you can have any hope before a holy God, if not through Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your gift of love, your one and only Son who died and rose again. Father, we thank you for your offer that anyone who would believe on him, who would trust in him, who would surrender their lives to him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, I pray that you by your spirit would work through your word today. And I pray for every man, woman, boy, and girl who has looked to Jesus as their only hope and taken hold of him. That, Father, by your spirit now, as we remember the body and blood of Jesus, as we commune with Jesus through the presence of the Holy Spirit, that you would nourish us and strengthen us, strengthen us in our faith and give us a bold confidence that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And Father, I pray for any man, woman, boy, or girl here today who has not taken hold of your offer of forgiveness and life through Christ, that even now, Lord, that you would show them their guilt, show them their need, show them, Lord, their desperate condition without you, and that today they would call on you and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and that today would be the day of their salvation. We thank you, we love you, we praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you, one God forever and ever.